Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe. Those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, my partner Ravinder is here in the studio with me, and she is uncertain for the hour. So, Rav, say hello to everyone, share your special insight for the day, and please tell everyone how they can learn more about our show. Well, hello, everyone. Great to have you back with us. I think, actually, the older I get, the more time I spend being uncertain. Forget about for for an hour it's like i question everything but i was always told that is part of the wisdom of growing older so maybe i'm wiser who knows but uh we are looking forward to a really good show today remember we have the facebook page provocative enlightenment radio any pertinent information that is provided on the air we will put it there as well so if there's any special links or anything like that any other details we will be sure to post it in there and of course if you have any questions you are more than welcome to put them forward there and we will try to get them on the air for you um, so that is on Facebook. That is Provocative Enlightenment Radio. Do you, I mean, do you see questions go in there? I mean, most people, as I understand it, they go to the show afterwards to find where to play it in the archive or to get more information on who the guest is. Do, do people actually put questions in there? Um, generally, you know, they're looking just for the links and stuff like that. I get questions through private messenger um, as well. Um, so, yeah, they come in all formats. All right. In this week's Spotlight, I'd like to address the notion that people who believe in spiritual matters, including the so-called paranormal, are allegedly less bright than those who deny such things. A study I read this past week in Frontiers of Psychology suggests that this is due to the fact that believers rely on intuition instead of reason. Quoting for a moment, overall the research found that atheists perform better than the religious participants even when demographic factors like age and education were taken into consideration. Agnostics mostly placed between atheists and believers on all tasks. While strength of religious conviction correlated with poorer cognitive performance, the data did show that there were only a few small differences in working memory compared to tasks that required reasoning. As such, rather than having poor general intelligence, the researchers say that religious people's lower IQ test results may be a b result of bad performance on tasks only where intuition and logic come into conflict. Close quote. That's kind of interesting. 
lower IQ tests. Ravinder. I'm joking, of course. <laughs> Cheeky booger. Now, the fact of the matter is, and based on several studies, not just the aforementioned, a prominent hypothesis has emerged which suggests that the religiosity effect is underpinned by cognitive behavioral biases that cause poorer detection of situations in which intuition and logic are in conflict. Put simply, religious individuals are less likely to engage logical processes and be less efficient at detecting reasoning conflicts. Therefore, they're more likely to take intuitive answers at face value, and this impairs performance on intelligence tests. More broadly, from the perspective of this hypothesis at least, religious cognition is facilitated and hallmarked by intuitive decision-making. We trust. We've been educated to trust. We believe. We've been instructed to believe. So it's not a matter of intelligence per se. It's rather a matter of how we use our dual processing powers of reason and intuition. There are times that intuition trumps reason, and it should. But relying on it in favor of reason as a general operational modality is less advantageous overall. An article appearing in Neuroscience News put it this way. These findings provide evidence in support of the hypothesis that the religiosity effect relates to conflict between reasoning and intuition as opposed to reasoning ability or intelligence more generally. If, as this work suggests, religious belief predisposes people to rely more heavily on intuition and decision-making, and the stronger their belief, the more pronounced the impact, how much of a difference does this make to actual achievement in the real world? At the moment, there's no data on this, but in theory, perhaps cognitive training could allow religious people to maintain their beliefs without over-relying on intuition when it conflicts with logic in day-to-day decision-making. I'm reminded of a quote in the Bible that admonishes against the blind following the blind and the burden many clerics put on their followers that ignore this and urges blind faith. Well, for me, don't refrain from the mysteries. No, dig into them. Don't blindly accept anything because some cleric or some authority insists that it is the only right way. Those are my thoughts anyway. What are yours, Ravinder? You know, I think I've got a jumble of thoughts uh, when you talk about this. You know, part of what you were saying earlier, it actually sounded to me like you were smarter if you give the answers that they want you to give as opposed I mean there's a time and a place for intuition and I don't know that it's really smarter or less smart 
um, I think there's a whole package in wisdom and in life. So having these rules, j- just like the conversation we had l- last week with Thomas Plant, when he was talking about, um, you know, some of the problems with religion and how people can attack certain aspects of it and they pick out the most ridiculous aspect and try to assign that across religion. Well, I think that's what you're getting a little bit of here. They're saying they're not as intelligent but I think it's no, they, a different kind of intelligence. What they're saying is these were IQ tests. These The measures were on an IQ test. So just as, um, you know, the nine-dot matrix requires thinking out of the box in order to solve, um, that's a, a process of reason and not a process of intuition. So when you... When you get into these kinds of questions, this, this sort of situation in the IQ test, are you applying intuition or are you applying reason? Uh, I don't disagree with you. They complement one another. And as I said in the spotlight, there's a time and a place for both. However, there's nothing intuitive about accepting something on blind faith. There's nothing intuitive about well, I know everything because I was taught it. There's nothing intuitive about, well, it has to be this way because my minister says so. You see, and, 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 and that's the kind of conflict that these studies have been talking about. We, we intuitively accept the idea that there must be a poltergeist because, after all, there are ghosts. And if there's a hell, there's going to be bad spirits. And if there's a heaven, that's where the good spirits are. So we don't reason about that. We just intuitively accept it. And that's just one example. We'll be talking about those kinds of things today. So we can get in there and find out a little more. But but the the whole subject is about setting reason, the priority of ratiocination, utilizing that skill set to first look for Occam's razor. What's the simplest explanation? Do we need to think of a a poltergeist? Is there some other explanation? Remember, I've told you this story before, and I'll go ahead and share it now because it's relevant to the show. But I saw the, um, the movie The Exorcist when it first came out, the original, at a drive in theater. I drove home. Walked into my apartment, had to go to the restroom, went straight to the restroom. (laughs) I'm standing there urinating, and the whole room begins to shake. Boy, I can't tell you what went through my mind initially, but it wasn't (laughs) reason. I'm ripping the shower curtain open and looking everywhere. But it was a minor earthquake. Now, (laughs) Occam's razor would have said... Don't worry about running out of the bathroom while you're still urinating down your leg. Uh, Think about what other alternatives there might have been. Lovely mental images there, sir. (laughs) Okay. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Professor Thomas Plant. We discussed his book, Healing with Spiritual Practices. Tony wrote, I really enjoyed your show with Professor Plant. He could be my therapist anytime. Jane wrote, great show with Plant. 
He is so good at explaining what most clergy run from. Your point exactly, Ravinder. Absolutely. Moving on, Francis wrote, Your developing resilience program is a fantastic product, particularly in the context of coronavirus. After listening to it two to three times, I feel serene, calm, and confident. And these feelings are lasting long after listening to the file. It's really great. Well, we're pleased with that, Francis. Thank you. Debbie wrote, I purchased the physical copy of Healing from Abuse. I've been using it and seeing great results. Stan wrote, I purchased and used your self-motivation subliminal CD. As a musician, I'm very impressed with the musical accompaniment. It makes the CD very easy and enjoyable to use. And Dr. Abu Sahara wrote, I am a physician and have great confidence in your products. My wife and I have throughout the years listened to several of your CDs for different reasons with positive outcome. Well, thank you, doctor. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But we do love your feedback, so please keep it coming. You can opine by sending me an email at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor or on Provocative Enlightenment on Facebook. We do sincerely appreciate your comments and suggestions. Now to today's show, Project Phenomena, Evaluating the Paranormal with author-researcher Brian Allen. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Brian J. Allen has been writing articles embracing all kinds of paranormal, esoteric, and Gnostic themes for over 25 years. He is the author of 12 books, including the subject of today's show, He currently is the editor of Phenomena Magazine and a regular speaker on the conference circuit. So on that, let's get him in. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Brian Allen. Hi, how are you doing? Thank you for having me on. Indeed, I enjoyed your book very much. I'm looking forward to the show, Brian. But on this show, we like to know three things. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And of course, how do we use it? I may be asking you, how do I hide from poltergeist later? But to that end... (laughs) What are you passionate about, and when and why did you become interested in the paranormal and occult phenomena? Okay, well, let me put it this way, that uh, I've been interested in this subject since I think I was two years old, and I mean that, and I'm going back now 74 years, I'm 76 now. I first got interested in this in 1946, yeah, around just after 1946, um, I had my first experience at two years old. It's happened odd times ever since, always unbidden. And yes, so I became a believer, a believer at a very young age. It sort of focused me then. But it wasn't until the last, I guess, 10, 15, 20 years that I started writing. And um, I've just tried to get all my ideas out onto paper and, and, and just share my thoughts with other people. Hopefully, the you know the, the, I can take them along for the ride. But uh, the first experience I had, perhaps I, 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 I can explain this to you, is that um, this. Bear in mind, this is before the time of UFOs, before the time of greys, insectoids, what have you. I mean, nobody knew what a UFO was in, in 1946, let alone describe one. But what I saw was I woke up. It was early morning. In my bedroom, I was actually, I'll tell you how young I was, I was lying in a cot, okay, I was lying in, and I woke up, I was lying on my left hand side and I was looking out from under the blankets 
And about six six feet from me, uh, there was a piano in, in my bedroom, a baby grand piano, a Daneman baby grand piano at that. And it was my dad's. And uh, between the piano, uh, between me, the cot and the piano, there was something standing watching me. This thing was about four foot high. Um, its arms were folded. It was wearing like a one-piece green jumpsuit. Oh, this always stuck in my mind, tight-fitting uh, green jumpsuit, arms folded. The, it wasn't like separate shoes. That the, It was like a pair of tights as well, the whole thing. And it was just standing watching me. There was no threat, no sense of threat. I didn't feel threatened by this thing. It just watched me. But um, the one thing that did strike me as being very odd was the fact that its belt was extreme. It, in fact, it wasn't really a belt. I think, in, in retrospect, it was a device of some kind it was wearing. And it was watching me. Anyway, as I said, I didn't feel frightened. I didn't feel, you know, alarmed. I closed my eyes and opened them a couple of times, and this thing wasn't for going away. It was still there, still watching me. And um, I just, you know, I just I thought, well, you know, two years old, well, so it's good, good stuff. So I just went back to sleep. And I woke up and it had gone. I guess I must have woken up about two or three minutes later and it had gone. And uh, after that, I would guess maybe a few months later, I had my first, if you like, UFO-based dream. And I think the two were actually connected. That um, this was your, your, your typical, if you like, or atypical um, UFO. It was disc-shaped. It was huge. And I knew it was coming to me. It was coming for me. And this is before 1947. This is before Roswell. This is before any of that stuff. And I knew that thing was coming for me. And I think that thing in my bedroom and uh, the UFO dream, or not, well, yeah, it was a dream, almost like a lucid dream. I, I, I would call that later a lucid dream because I was able to control what was happening in the dream. And that, um, yeah, the two were connected. And I've had a, a, an interest in the subject ever since. I've had paranormal type experiences, but there again, I don't see any difference between ufology and the paranormal because so many of the facets of these of the phenomena are absolutely identical. So yeah, I've had, I've been interested in this for the past 73, 74 years. It's been quite a long time. Wow. Yeah, a lot of people would run away from it if they had experiences like that. They'd you know be running to their cleric and or they might be sitting down with their psychotherapist who <laughs> would be asking him questions like did you watch the twilight zone just before you went to bed <laughs> you heard you heard today's spotlight sir what are your thoughts on this notion that religious people or people that believe in the supernatural are somehow less bright than those that don't well no um i was reading in fact, it's funny, just the synchronicity of this sort of thing, it works very well. Uh, in fact, I think there's rather more to synchronicity than, than meets the eye. But um, the book is called Randy's Prize, and it's about the debunkers that set out to destroy anyone's belief in, in paranormal phenomena, and they do it by any means they possibly can. If, they, For example, if they think that the phenomena or the test they set aren't going their way and people are actually... Coming, you know, they're actually demonstrating these properties. They will move the goalposts, so people can't meet the criteria. But no, I don't think people who have have a religious belief or a paranormal belief, because I think they're both one and the same thing. Um, I don't think they're any less bright. In fact, I think they're probably more intelligent and more open-minded than the narrow-minded cynics that try and destroy any belief in a paranormal. Because ultimately, when you die, you'll soon find out if it's true or not. 
it's it, it, in my mind it's kind of hard to swallow the idea just on face value because if we you know just simply look at history and we look at all those icons in history you know from the the socrates and the aristotle to you know uh, the einsteins the bohrs uh you're, you're talking about deeply spiritual people that you know believed that there was something much greater than just oh, this yeah. life here so but i you know your book covers several areas of paranormal phenomena and and we're going to get into that but you know when you talk about the paranormal today uh, that might include everything as you suggested from uh, ufo's and telekinesis uh, to fairies and gnomes so from yeah. your your own experience is there any of this that you consider to just dismiss as nonsense it's about interpretation uh, yeah i think it's all about interpretation that um each millennia each era has encountered if you call them fairies if you like call them gnomes but they've been around since the beginning of time i think uh, we just interpret these things differently it's rather like if you were to encounter, say, in the Middle Ages or, or, or the Dark Ages, someone was to encounter, let, let's say, a, a, an ET of some kind, they might classify them as either a demon or an angel. It would, it would depend on the context. Because in point of fact, angels and ETs, except for the contact, there is absolutely no difference. They are the same kind of creature because, like I say, these things have been with us since the beginning of time. They just hide out of our sight because they don't particularly like us, I don't think, or at least to tolerate us, I think would be the best way of putting it. But um, we do ourselves no favours whatsoever because the way we react and act, we act like fools sometimes and we deny the evidence of our own eyes. But you mentioned scientists like Niels Bohr, you mentioned Einstein, people like that. The whole point is that as we move forward with science, Science is demonstrating the reality of the paranormal, whether it likes it or not. And I say that because there is one experiment in particular that uh, actually demonstrates this hands-on, and it is the, the, the twin-slit experiment. When, if a photon is observed, it does one thing. If it's not observed, it's done something else. It does something else, and you've got to ask why. And if you ask a physicist, and they'll be honest with you, they'll tell us you call it something called quantum entanglement. That somehow, at the quantum level, the act of watching something causes it to act in a specific manner. This is why I think that in some, in some degree, we're all, if you like, uh, connected to everything else. So, um, yeah, I think that science is rapidly proving the existence of the paranormal, and it doesn't like it very much. Interesting, interesting. Okay, you, you you must have heard, because we had you connected, my story of the exorcist at the drive-in sure. theater. All right, look. Is there any truth to, you know, the sorts of exorcisms that we see portrayed in the movies? Yes, there is. But the point is, I mean, it's not all spinning heads and vomiting green pea soup, I can assure you, because... Like you, I saw The Exorcist when it first came out, um, and I can tell you it shook me rigid. In fact, it's such an accurate portrayal of demonic possession that uh, Father Gabriela Morta, who was at the one time chief exorcist with the Vatican, he suggested that any would-be exorcist or young priests who wanted to be exorcists should watch that film seriously, 
because it was such an accurate portrayal of what can happen. But there again, Father Morta was very, very conservative in, in, in his outlook. And he thought that, you know, the church was, you know, swinging away from what he saw as the true path. But exorcism, I've, I have carried out exorcisms. Um, I have been exorcised. I've carried them out myself. And I don't believe it's, it's what you're doing. Um, I'll give you an example of this. As you probably know, the Roman ritual or the ritual Romanum is the traditional Catholic form of exorcism, and it says in Latin. Now, when they changed a lot of the stuff that the Catholic Church did, you know, for example, the Tridentine Mass was stopped, they stopped saying the Mass in Latin and so forth, and they could just use it in the language of the country where it was being said. But one of the few things that did not change was was the ritual Romanum. It remained in its own form in, in, in Latin. And I think the reason it did that was because that form of words had built up such an immense power through their use in a, for a particular subject that actually saying the words released that power. But I tend to think it's rather more than that because any exorcisms that I carried out, and, I, and I've carried out two or three and have worked, it didn't really matter. You didn't have to say things in Latin and you didn't have to use any particular form of prayer at all, in point of fact. What you had to tell was, was actually to tell these things to get out of that house, get out of these people, leave them alone, but don't mess around. Don't, don't be half-hearted about this because they will attack you if they can and they have attacked me in the past. So I know that I can protect myself and I know I can get rid of them because I've had to do it two or three times. So the act of exorcism does work but it's not necessarily, it doesn't have to be prayer. And you've just got to mean what you're saying and any form of words will do. Okay, we've got a break coming up. When we come back, I'm, I, I want to chase this just a little bit further. I mean, when you sure. see these, when you see these movies or you read these stories, I, I, I get the idea of somebody being possessed. I, and, and okay, whether it's a psychological phenomena or this is, you know, a, a demon that's possessing them. I understand that. But the supernatural powers that we see where they throw 200 pound men across the room or they levitate, you know, and th th I'm going to ask you about that after the break. But I'm getting pushed sure. here. So we're speaking with Brian Allen about his work and book. Project Phenomena, Evaluating the Paranormal. It's a great read. You can learn more about our guest and his books by visiting his website at Brian J. Allen, and that's B-R-I-A-N-J, initial J, A-L-L-A-N, dash home dot C-O dot U-K. We'll be right back. Please stay tuned. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. I'm going to let you explain to me why you think Seven Seas of Rye by Queen is such important music to you. And how does it tell us about who you are? Well, it tells what I should tell people that um, I like good rock music. Um, Seven Seas of Rye, it was the first commercial, really commercial success that Queen ever had. And it's just a good, uh, it's a good time all out rock tune, and it just steams along. That 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 piece of music just steams along. And 
There are so many I could have chosen, but but I think that of the two bands, there again, I'm giving away my age a little bit, that the two bands that I really rate, one is Queen, the other is Led Zeppelin. And um, I guess the most recent band that I took an interest in is called Royal Blood. And that's just, well, they're just, they, I guess these guys are both in their 20s, but um, if that, but it's a, again, it's a really good band. But I'm just, I'm a rock and roll person and I like rock and roll music, except, there is one tune that I, so I gave it as an alternative to Seven Seas of Rye, and it's, it's a song called Jesus Was a Crossmaker. It was written by Judy Sill, uh, who was an American folk singer. She died of an overdose in the 80s. And it, was also called, it was also recorded by a lady called Judy Zook, and also by Mama Cass Elliot. I think by Warren Zavins also recorded it. It's a, it's, a, it's a truly beautiful, stunning piece of music. And it's one of these earworms that once you start listening to it, you just can't get it out of your head, sadly. <laughs> well, you know, it's great music. It's too bad we couldn't play it, but all right. Before the break, Brian, I, you know, I suggested to you I get the polar guy stuff, okay? Yeah. Um, or the possession, I'm sorry. Uh, but how about the supernatural power? I mean, does that really exist? These people levitate, they throw people across the room. Well, okay, I'll level with you here that um, I once asked, when we, once in conversation, we asked, is there any theoretical limit to what a poltergeist could actually move? For example, do you reckon a poltergeist could move, uh, I guess, a, a locomotive? Could it pick it up and throw it away? I, I don't know. I suspect not. It seems to be able to lift things that you or I could lift shall we say. Um, certainly, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the, of the, of the Hutchison, the Hutchison effect, where well, there was a guy, John Hutchison, up in Canada there, he carried out a series of experiments, and there was an article written about him, it was called The Poltergeist Machine, and, and he was producing all sorts of strange effects in his laboratory. It was to do with interactive um, electromagnetic fields and how they reacted with him, and he was actually redirecting them, it seems, through his own body, although he didn't realise it at the time. And he was producing stuff like things was, it was fly, stuff was flying around his laboratory, fires would break out, um, like liquid would pour out of a cup upside down, like it was pouring from, from the bottom up, all sorts of weird stuff going on. But I have seen things move um, spontaneously, I don't do ghost hunting anymore. I, I just I just don't see the point of it anymore because there's only so much you can actually see. And once you've said, "Wow, that's amazing," that's that's amazing, or that's amazing, so many times, it just it's just old it's just old stuff. There's nothing more you're going to learn from it. And these people that go about with flight cases full of equipment, and and they're measuring this and they're measuring that. I mean, so what they actually proven actually what what they're actually doing is proven nothing. All they're doing is demonstrating there's a phenomenon happening, and if a TV company wants to pick up on it and give them money to do it well and good, you know, good good luck to them. But to me, I stopped doing it years ago because I just I wasn't learning anything from it, so I just stopped doing it. But as to poltergeist poltergeist effects, yeah, well, levitation. I've never seen spontaneous levitation of anyone. Um, I know that some of the some of the saints were supposed to be able to do this. Uh, Joseph Cupertino was one, and I think there were, I can't, oh, there were several of them that actually used to levitate. But most, but other ones seemed to give it a strange light. They actually glowed. And I came across, when I was checking this, I came across a phenomenon called the death flash. Mm. Now, um, 
sometimes the higher grades of of of, of, of the yogas, yogis, in, in Hinduism and so forth, and the, the people all across in, in Tibet and so forth, that you've obviously heard of the Shroud of Turin, which is supposed to be the image of Christ that is actually somehow photographed on the on the fabric of of of, of his of his shroud, I guess it was. Well, this has happened with these advanced, if you like, Tibetan lamas. I've also produced this effect that when they died, they seemed to give off a flash of light and their actual image is actually imprinted on the shroud that's actually covering them. So this is not new. The shroud of Turin is not new because this has happened before. I don't know if it's still happening to this day, but it certainly happened before because when we die that your actual cells give off light, or they can give off light. And I believe that these people, these Tibetan lamas, they have reached a such a degree of, of um, fulfillment and enlightenment that when they, when they let go, when, when their physical body dies, they actually give off this flash of light, which is, as I said, called the death flash. And uh, I think that they have actually created their own versions of, of the of the Chirin Shroud by imprinting their own body or their image of their own body on the fabric that's covering them. But there again, that is one of these things that people would need to check out for themselves. But I've seen enough evidence of it that I think it's actually real. That's really interesting. It, it reminds me, it makes me think of spontaneous combustion. Yeah. Uh, they say, you know, if you're good at it, you don't leave any ashes. Do you... Do you accept that? Do you think, you know, there is such a thing as ascension through spontaneous combustion? Well, can become, spontaneous combustion, yeah. Does it happen? Yes, it does. Um, well, I believe it does. There's certainly good evidence that it does. I mean, they found these bodies where there's maybe just a charred a foot or something left still in its shoe. The chair that the body's been sitting in is a little scorched, but it's not burned. Uh, there's very little damage to the surrounding, the room that the body burned up in, but of the body itself, there's virtually nothing left, which requires one, one horrific temperature if you're going to burn bone. Think about, if you think about that. I can see flesh and blood and fat catching fire, because fat will burn it. it. It's a combustible agent. But why, why it should burn at that temperature, I haven't a clue. I, I don't know. I mean... I'm not going to sit here and tell you I know all the answers to all this, and, and anybody that does claim to know all the answers doesn't. That, 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 I can amply guarantee you that, because I certainly don't know the answers. But all I can do is, is try to objectively observe the phenomena and try and work out what has actually happened there. But as far as spontaneous combustion goes, yeah, it does happen, but it's very, very rare. And I mean, I don't know if any of that, any, that has happened in the past few years, 10, 15, 20 years, I don't think that's actually happened, or it hasn't been reported if it has. But, uh, yeah, it's certainly a real phenomenon, but I, I don't know what causes it. Yeah, I'll bet when you're at a party somewhere, a cocktail party, you've got everybody around you throwing questions at you right and left, don't you? Oh, yeah. Okay, let's go to your book. What's a succubus? And please share with our audience a story told in your book, about the Morcombe succubus. Oh, the, the Morcombe, Morcombe succubus. Yeah, well, Morcombe, it's a seaside town in England. Um, a succubus, oh, well, we're going to start getting to, uh, get myself into trouble here. There's the incubus and there's a succubus. Uh, 
succubus is male, incubus is female. Um, they were in, do they actually exist? Well, maybe, shall I say. But certainly, this town called Morecambe, this young guy, um, he was being attacked. He had, he had just moved into this new apartment. He was being harassed, attacked by something in the night. It would get into bed with him, it would touch him, it would pull his hair. But this thing wasn't particularly human-looking. It had a dog-like face, it had unkempt hair. And he wasn't sure himself if this was either a hypnopompic or a hypnagogic hallucination. It was actually, because it always happened as he was either wakening up or falling asleep. But traditionally, the, um, the succubus and incubus were the inventions of the church. Because basically, um, I don't know much I can say on your show, but, uh, but um, if priests couldn't marry, obviously, and um, well, some of them did, but that was another story. But uh, priests had, they were men like any other, and, and, and they had nocturnal ejaculations. Now, the church didn't like that, so they must have been getting seduced into doing that because their purity wouldn't allow them this to happen to them. So there must have been some demon getting at them and, 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 and causing this to happen. Although some of this, you know, <laughs> We're in an area now that the incubus and the succubus, the guy in Morecambe, it was certainly happening to him. Something was happening to him, although it may not have been a succubus. It may have been something else. I mean, he was seeing things in the room. Uh, a little girl um, would appear, at, and, and she, she, there was nothing below the knees, and she was just drifting out of the room. But there was a whole lot happening in, that, in the flat that that moved into. So I think the succubus was just one element of it. But as I said, that, that is the... Um, the, 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 the female side of it, whereas the male side is the incubus, and they would supposedly come to women in the night and make love to them. Uh, I think there was a film uh, made made about that, quite a good one, if I recall, number 20, 15, 20 years ago. I can't remember the name of it offhand, but uh, it was about a succubus, about an incubus, and, and this was making love or raping this woman in the night. And uh, But these things, yes, it does happen, but is it psychosomatic? Is it the result of some sort of mental aberration on, on the person? Are they creating this, these entities off their own back? Are they, are they actually causing this themselves? And how, it, it's, how can I put this? They're creating these things out of their own brain and their body is reacting as if it's a physical attack, which is quite a phenomenon in itself. But um, yeah, I did write this particular chapter, chapter called The, the, the Morecambe Succubus. And it does... Um, it does, it does feature what happened to this guy in this house, in this flat in Morecambe. I know that he did change, you know, he would bring his girlfriend up and she experienced stuff happening in, 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 the, in, in the apartment as well. He actually changed bedrooms. He would go out of the bedroom he was in, but the, but the phenomena kept following him. But yeah, it's, it's one of these really hard questions to ask, to answer, because nobody's 100% certain. All I could do was follow the clues. All I could do was, was give the answers on based on, on, on the information I found it, and I set these out in the book. But it's, ultimately, it's up to the actual reader to make up their minds whether they believe it was true or not. Okay. I guess, I, you know, I think now we've talked a little bit about entities that possess you, you know, demons and poltergeists and succubus and... You know, the first thing that kind of comes to most people's mind when you start thinking about all this is what what can they do that, you know, provides psychic protection against this stuff? 
Well, the interesting part is if this kind of phenomena occurs in a house where the people are, are, are av avid disbelievers, that the, 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 the skeptics and they would debunk it until it actually happens in their house. But as, as to protection against it, the more you mess with this stuff, the more likely it is to happen to you, I would, I, I would think. It doesn't happen to me anymore simply because I've cleansed the house too many times. And I was once told by a very good psychic that it was the most psychically neutral house that they'd ever been in because I've cleansed it so many times. I do it as a matter of course. Because in, because of what I do, I mean, I edit Phenomena magazine. We've got a readership of two million. I get stuff in all the time, material for the magazine. And um, some of the stuff you read, you shake your head and you say, is this real? And, you know, some of the stuff is so crazy I wouldn't even put it in the magazine because it's just literally unbelievable. But we're talking about subjective realities now. Um, if somebody thinks it's real, and it is, for them it is, and there's no argument about it, but it's when, you, when you're objective about it that you, you, you struggle to see is it real or is it not. But, um, yeah, it's... The, the whole subject of the paranormal, it's, I'm saying bedeviled, it's, it's maybe just a bad choice of word, but... Um, the whole subject is shrouded in a whole host of, of personal beliefs, personal experiences, and what you're willing to believe. But the more I look at the subject, the more convinced I am that the psi phenomenon, psychic phenomenon is real, and I think we create it ourselves through some aspect of our consciousness, because consciousness itself, I don't think, believe it resides so solely within the bones of your skull. I think consciousness is, is a unit, is a, is a planet-wide, a universal uh, constant. And I think in some, sometimes we can actually, the individual can get into, get into the gestalt, and into, the, into the, the, the wholeness of it, and interact with it there, and bring it here. But um, well, we, we talked right at the, at the top of this when I was speaking, but we were talking about um, aspects of particle physics. Um, I think that... that, that Physics will explain the paranormal, and they will explain how it functions. And and once we get a handle on that, it, it is no longer paranormal; it is normal, because we understand what's happening in a scientific term. Because I've always tried to apply science to what I do, and it's sometimes not easy. But it always it always struck me as being very very strange that if something can move of its own accord, it can lift up. It can fly or it can move across and it can set down again. That is cause and effect. What caused it to move? Where did the energy come from? Because it, 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 you're now going on to, the, if you like, the um, laws of motion. Um, that for equal, for equal, every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So if something is, is causing something to move, how is it doing it? Where is the energy coming from? I think, for example, that, that cold spots that are sometimes experienced in, when there's poltergeist phenomena around, it's almost as if the heat is being converted. You're not getting anything, but you're not getting something for nothing here. The heat has been has been taken and converted into kinetic energy. So the act of the heat being taken and converted causes the cold spot. But that again is just a theory. But the, the thing is, Ellen, that, that really. For me to come on and try and explain explain a lot of this stuff in like an hour, an hour slot, it, it, it's nigh on impossible. All I can give you is little sketch, sketches and snapshots. 
But trying to tie it all together, I mean, I've been trying to do it for the past 70 odd years and I'm still struggling. Hello? Okay, well, I'm beginning to think maybe I need some psychic protection, Brian. Uh-huh. I have... I have three computers here uh, on the studio table uh, for this conversation, and you might be a conduit for negative psychic. Two of the three have just quit. Didn't work. Couldn't play your music. The second one just shut down. Um, I don't know. Maybe if I'm going to be superstitious. No, I'm joking, of course. Listen. On a personal note, for years I have, and I'm not joking about two of the three computers being down, but I was joking <laughs> about you being the conduit. For years I have followed the Doris Bither case. This is a story of a woman who allegedly was raped by the ghosts of three men. I'm sure you're familiar with it. They made a movie out of it. It was titled The Entity. The Entity Barry yeah, yeah. Taff was working in the UCLA parapsychology lab that was run by the late Thelma Moss. And, you know, there's some credibility here. And when he heard of the story, he set up cameras in the Bithers' home. Taft claimed to have photographed orbs and a variety of luminous anomalies while investigating the case. So my question, uh, do you think there is credibility to the idea that a poltergeist, in this instance, three are actually raping a woman? You've moved back into the into the incubus succubus area because if a poltergeist is doing that, then it's not a poltergeist; it's probably an incubus. Okay. Which is, yeah. So, so uh, go ahead. No, no. I, I was just I was just making the point that it's unlikely to be a straightforward poltergeist. It's something else entirely. I mean, poltergeists wouldn't do that because it's not what they do. In so fact, it'd be a succubus. Not an incubus. If, if, if it was attacking a woman, it would be an incubus, not a succubus. The succubus is female, the incubus is male. Okay, by okay. Right. Thanks. I should have got again, you explained that earlier. So you yeah. think an incubus could, could actually do this? <sighs> Dude, really, uh, you, you would be asking me to commit to something that I'm not sure about because... Um, no, I don't want you to commit. I just want you to throw out an opinion. I don't know. Maybe. No. I think what was happening, well, we're actually moving into the area of, of do I think ghosts have form? Do I think ghosts are, are, um, or, or spirit is malignant? Or do they, are there malignant entities? Are, are there benevolent entities? Or are there just entities? And it's how we treat them. Or it's how we perceive them that, that, that decides how they react. Um, I would tend to think that what this happened, what was happening to this woman, uh, as you mentioned that, that 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 film, that was happening to her. But was she generating it? Was it some sort of uh, split personality thing that was actually happening to her? Was it coming from inside? That was it, in other words, was the phenomenal internal or external? If it was external and it could have been proven to be external, we're, we're on very very dangerous ground here because we don't know what we're dealing with. And like I say, anyone that claimed to know what they're dealing with doesn't know what they're talking about, I can assure you. Because I, I would not draw lines under this kind of stuff. If, if I was given a casual opinion as to what happened to that woman, if 
if she thinks she was getting attacked, then she was getting attacked. It's as simple as that. If if someone could actually independently assess this, it could film the attacks. It could film her getting picked up, getting pushed around, her clothes getting ripped off, whatever. That's that that's that that's a bonus. I know that maybe sounds a little bit harsh to put it that way, but when you in when you move into the subject, you've got to be fairly harsh about it. You've actually got to make these parameters and draw these parameters up. I mean. When I used to go ghost hunting, I would set up sensors, I would set up temperature sensors, motion sensors, film cameras, or, or, or uh, sorry, video cameras, I shouldn't say film cameras, but video cameras, I'd set up all this stuff, and sometimes you'd get stuff on them, sometimes you wouldn't. Sometimes you'd get, you'd get meters um, to, 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 to indicate that the deflect when something appeared to be happening. I mean, there was one case I was on, I'll just run through this very briefly. It's a place up in Edinburgh, it's called the Greyfriars Churchyard, and it's called the Covenanters Prison. I won't go into the details of this, but we were in this strip of ground that's part of the, of the, of the Greyfriars Churchyard. We're on both sides of the, of the, there's actually mausoleums run down both, maybe about 100 yards long this. And there's mausoleums on both sides. Well, we were standing at the bottom, I was with a psychic, and we were investigating a poltergeist, oddly enough, a poltergeist case. And I had a tri-field meter in front of me. And it was sitting just maybe about three, you know, it was sitting just bouncing off zero, but, but they're next to nothing. Just a few, few micro-Tesla. And she suddenly said, there's something walking past us. And the, the meter went full scale, dropped back to zero. And I'm like, oh, it picked up something. Oh, she said, there's something it's coming the other way and the meter went full scale and went down again. So you have to ask yourself, what did she detect? Did she actually detect a magnetic field that, that caused the meter to, uh, to to go full scale? Or was it the entity that caused the, 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 the meter to go full scale? In other words, did the magnetic field cause the entity or did the entity cause the magnetic field? Uh, these are one of these strange anomalies that you kept that I kept getting happening when I, when I was out in cases. And like I say, a couple of I hate to interrupt you, Brian. I, 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 there are so many questions I have. I'd love to have you finish this. I want to know about... I wanted you to tell me about the Harrisoning, the Stockport, um, Stockport Polder guy, and so oh, much yeah. more, but we're just out of time. I do encourage everybody out there to go get a copy of your book. Uh, and, and I want to thank you very much for your time and your willingness to share your knowledge, and your experience with us, sir. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and will join us again next week, same time and same place, and do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Until then, remember, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. <laughs>